0: Welcome to St. Mark's Cathedral Conversations, a podcast featuring members of the St. Mark's Cathedral community in Seattle, Washington. These interviews feature lives of faith and adventure, service and connection. Here's our host, Michael Pereira.
1: Sitting here in Canon, Nancy Ross's office on a beautiful fall Wednesday. I've known Nancy for years now, I think, when she first started to come to St. Mark's and it's been a wonderful journey of pastoral care, of learning. But now we're gonna dig a little bit deeper and find out who Nancy is and find out how this whole Episcopal journey got started for her. So Nancy Ross, thank you so much for being part of our conversation here today. Glad to be with you, Michael. As I said, I don't know how this journey got started for you. I don't know how the Episcopal Church, or how the priesthood became a thing in your life. So, as far back as you want, turn the clock back and tell us how this, how these pieces started to come together. Oh my! Well, that that's a lot of clock turning. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, let's see. I, I am a nice Catholic girl from uh, Poughkeepsie, New York, and uh, I went to Catholic elementary school and high school. And St. Bonaventure University, that's in upstate New York. And, uh, you know, the faith was always a big part of my life. So I have had my issues, you know, with, with doctrinal and political things about church. But, um, but faith was always in my heart. And I used to say as I, you know, grew into young adulthood that, you know, they, meaning the patriarchy, You know, cannot take my church from me. It is mine, so whatever they're doing, you know, I'm here, but I'm not with them. And that was how I went forward in my faith. I have a very diverse family, um, and as I had children and brought them to church with me every Sunday, and as they got older and more aware themselves, and we would hear things from the pulpit that just didn't sit well with me. They didn't sit well as how I experienced Jesus and what I thought was right in the world for people who are followers of Jesus, Mm. particularly homophobia, um, because I have a youngest sister um, who is gay. And I had worked in the theater and most of my friends were gay. And we couldn't listen to that kind of baloney, to use a nice word, over uh, in our church. Um, and yet I couldn't not go to church, so I just went to different churches trying to find a home that I thought would be wholesome for my children and me uh, in our faith journey. And those were uh, Roman Catholic churches, because that was my tradition, hmm. and, and it was in my bones. The Eucharist was in my bones. Um, I wasn't looking for a different tradition, but for a church that would reflect my experience of Jesus. So that was back in New York, and uh, at a certain point in my life, I went back to school. I wanted to get a master's degree, and I got an MFA in voice, and one of my friends, um, who knew I needed money at that time, said to me, she had a gig in an Episcopal church, and she was leaving, and she would recommend me if I wanted the job, and it's a paid soloist position in the chorus, and I did want the job, <laughs> and so um, she recommended me, and, and I got the gig, which was wonderful. Um, and so I started going to rehearsal mm-hmm. at an Episcopal church, and I didn't know the Episcopal church at all at that time, and so it was to my great shock the first time I went to liturgy, because it's, it was mass to me. Our liturgy is very, very similar, almost identical at that time. Um, to the liturgy in the Roman Catholic Church. And I thought, what do you know? Other people do Mass. And I just had been so naive to that uh, in my younger life. So I was happy to be singing in a church where the spiritual practice fed me and spoke to me. And come to find out at that church that there were many people who were gay. Um, The person who took care of the child care Um, was a lesbian, which would never have happened in our stodgy Catholic church that I was currently going to. And also um, her partner was on the vestry, you know, also would never have happened in the parish council at the church where I was going. And I thought, okay, this is my church. It's the faith that's in my bones, but it's the openness and much more welcoming presence that I experience
1: for being a follower of Jesus. That must have been mind-blowing to see so much of what you loved about the Catholic ritual and aesthetic Mm -hmm. being done in a different setting, but then also to see that this covenant of welcoming literally everybody, of treating everybody with dignity and equality in positions of staff and positions of leadership was so much of what you were looking for. That must have been in a way, life-changing. And I guess it was. It truly was,
0: Michael. It was life-changing for me to be like, Ha ah, <laughs> here is my church. Here is... But it's not just liturgy and aesthetic. It is the deep roots of faith. Right. I, for the longest time, you know, I never felt like I had changed churches. It was the same to me. Wow. So again, not because the practice was familiar, which of course is comfortable, yeah. but it's the faith. Uh, and as I grew more deeply, you know, into going to the Episcopal Church and learned more, I know that there are divergences of doctrine and theology. But really, the root of it, one holy, Catholic, and Apostolic. There we are, and it's it's the liturgy, and the followers of Jesus, and as you say, the way that I experience Jesus as all our beloved. Yeah. You know,
1: come to me, all of you. It's such a beautiful way of putting it. We yeah. all experience Jesus in different ways different times of our lives. Yeah. But then to find that synchronicity when everything lines up. Yeah. When did you feel comfortable saying, I will fully immerse myself in the Episcopal Church? I will fully start thinking of myself as an Episcopalian? Or yeah. You know, was that distinction ever there?
0: That distinction was not there for me for years and years. It was just church. church. Uh, now I realize that will not go over well with many an Episcopalian, <laughs> and definitely not with many a Roman Catholic. But in fact, this was my faith and this was my church. I didn't think a lot about that, yeah. um, honestly, till I was really thinking seminary and said to myself in a practical way, "You've got to, you've got to own your denomination to." to be ordained to work in your denomination. And in a macro way, you're owning what you're feeling as the call from Christ. And that's certainly there. But we express it within our denominations, and we rise up from community. Community raises us up. And so to name your community wholeheartedly mm-hmm. and, and believe it and feel it and love
1: it. You mentioned seminary, where did the call, where did the idea for seminary come from?
0: The idea came when I was singing at this Episcopal Church um, back in New York State, and I had only been there a couple of weeks, and I will preface that by saying being a priest, you know, uh, had never been a regret for me as a Roman Catholic woman. Oh, I would have been a priest, but you can't because you're a woman. I had other ideas about what I wanted to do with my life. I wanted to be married and have children, so I hadn't had this yen for the priesthood, but I had always had this yen for more of God in my life. Always seeking to get closer and to, to have more and deeper spiritual life all the time. So here I am at this Episcopal church. I was only there a couple of weeks when the priest was on vacation. And the priest who was subbing for him that day, lo and behold, was a woman, which had never crossed my mind. And when I saw her come out on the altar, I just had this sudden, solid knowing deep in my gut that said, ah, that's what I'm going to do. Wow. And it sounds very much a contrived story, like this is the boil down that I like to tell in my elevator speech. (laughs) But I'm telling you, Michael, it was that instantaneous, and it didn't feel like, you know, the angels are singing. It was just this deep gut, private thing in myself that said, oh, I'm going to do that.
1: And you had never had that thought before.
0: No, no, but the minute I saw a woman priest, that just became, that's down the road for me. I mean, I didn't run to seminary then. <laughs> I'd been singing at an Episcopal church for like three
1: weeks. Uh, but I just knew. I just knew. That's an, that must be an amazing feeling. This is a, the deep certainty. not Like yeah. you said, not uh, not hitting you over the head with it, but just that co- quiet confidence. That's my thing.
0: Yeah. It was It was really something. Just sitting there you know feeling it excited within myself but again you know not a cymbal clang just a huh (laughs) okay and knowing you know the day would come and and this wasn't the day but but the day would come and uh and not overly worrying about how or when or anything but uh just that little secret between the spirit and me deep in my gut and that's uh that's how that was my call honestly it, it seems very um, unremarkable or, or hasty <laughs> but it didn't happen then hastily yeah. but uh, you took your time that, when you were but ready. that's where it came from yeah
1: <laughs> so how did St. Mark's come on your radar
0: ah well I've been in Seattle for um four years now a little over and uh I moved to Seattle after I had finished seminary. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was in seminary a long time because I went half time while I was working full time. Um, And then I did a year of hospital chaplain residency. So I had finished seminary and I had finished hospital chaplain residency year uh, in California where I lived. I had moved to California Mm -hmm. by that time. And um, I was to be ordained a transitional deacon in December. My husband got a job in Seattle in March. So he moved up here, and I finished my residency in August and moved up in September. And with my ordination coming, I had to find my way into the diocese here quickly. I had to know that I would be accepted in this diocese, that I would have a place to serve my diaconate, because you can't get ordained if you don't have a place to go you know it's not something you carry around all on your own mm-hmm. just shining with hey i'm ordained it's work it's it yeah. is out of community yeah. so um, so how did i come to st marks my husband wanted me to like seattle <laughs> that's how <laughs> my husband scoped out that there was a cathedral here and one day he said um, i'm going to show you something and and he drove me over to the cathedral and he said you'll like this <laughs> Because I was that churchy kind of girl. <laughs> well, he knew you. He did. So uh, we looked at the cathedral. And um, and then the following Sunday, I came to church at the cathedral. And that's how I came to be here. I introduced myself to the preacher and to the presider. Um, and one of them was Dean Steve Thomason. And I told him, yes, hello, I'm Nancy. I'm new here, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> And he said, well, you need to come tell me your story, which was a lovely, gracious invitation. And so I did, and he helped me get organized to serve a diaconate here. And that's how I ended up at St. Mark's.
1: What was your first impression walking through the doors?
0: Look at this big, empty space. I was from the Diocese of California where we have Grace Cathedral in San Francisco, Uh, it's very fancy. So I walked into St. Mark's, and I was like, "Eh." (laughs) Huh How's that for an answer?
1: I will tell you, I've never heard that story before. (laughs) Okay. I mean, from you, from anybody. Well, that's
0: my very pedestrian self. (laughs) Um, But that was in an empty cathedral. Of course. uh, Then when I came on Sunday and it was full of people, I had a completely different feeling of being in the space and loving the way it was so much more uh, horizontal uh, as opposed to people sitting a thousand rows deep and being very far in the back. And the openness and the big white pillars and um, the altar being so much closer than it is in uh, other you know, fancier cathedrals where, you know, the people shall not come up there. <laughs> um, and it just left me with this warm feeling um, that has grown and grown, you know, with every time I've been here. Did you start as a curate? I started as a transitional deacon. As a transition
1: So what was it like serving that diaconate here?
0: It was wonderful. I I was so gratified and actually incredulous that it had happened so easily that I had come to church once and said hello to Steve and, and, and the next thing I know I actually have a place to serve my diaconate it, it seemed like just like that mm. and uh, you know the Holy Spirit's on the wing doing <laughs> stuff you just have to pay attention sometimes yeah. and um, so I was grateful and that's how I have felt Every minute that I'm here at St. Mark's, just grateful at the sheer serendipity. And a friend of mine corrected me when I said that and said, you mean grace. Yes, the sheer grace of having landed in this place and been so warmly welcomed. And then to start my diaconate here, um, where, you know, we have Deacon Earl Grout here, who is a wonder, And then he was my mentor on how to do deacon stuff. And so, you know, he walked me through many more times than a person needs to walk through something (laughs) as simple as this is where you walk up the center. This is where you sit. This is how we do the wine here. None of that is terribly complicated, Michael. (laughs) But I was so nervous. So I'd ask, I say, Earl, can we go through it one more time? He was just a delight and a joy. <laughs> yeah. So he showed me, you know, how to do things and and helped me feel comfortable. What um, I have told this story before, but the best thing anyone said to me when I started as a transitional deacon was the dean Steve Thomason said to me in my shaking nervousness up there with the big heavy silver. Uh, he said. Someday you will knock over the chalice. Don't worry about it. And um, that just put me at so much ease. I can't even tell you. Um, Because it does seem inevitable that with a table full of liquid things, something would get knocked over sometime, Hmm. and you worry about it. Um, (laughs) And just having said it, you know, does it make it more likely? Should I be superstitious? But, you know... Knock on wood, I haven't yet, but I fully expect to. And now I won't feel like um, life will end because of what Steve <laughs> said to me. <laughs> and I think Jesus will be okay, too.
1: <laughs> I've, I've overheard conversations with chalice bearers and the other people involved during communion that you know mix-ups will happen. Mm-hmm. Things will be dropped. Things will be spilled. Yes. And we trust that whatever happens, God is always in that process. Yeah. Maybe chuckling along, but as, you know, God's saying, yeah, it happened, never mind, there's a bigger thing to focus on here. Yes. Uh, and so even when you're up there, and not to put any pressure, but the whole cathedral looking at you <laughs> as you pour this stuff. That's you right, thanks, things. Michael. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking yeah. of pressure and the whole cathedral look at you, what's it like to preach a sermon at St. Mark's?
0: I will say... But it is a huge privilege to preach a sermon at St. Mark's um, because it's a very engaged congregation and it's a very open and welcoming congregation. So there is a lot of space to bring out what the Spirit is working on you with in your sermon. Hmm. I don't feel like I'm carefully trying to censor myself or, or find a... Uh, delicacies uh, not delicacy but a delicate way to say things Um, I feel like what's happening in the creation of a sermon you know is is a certain kind of work but then when you get up there uh, to speak that this is our work together the congregation and the preacher and I have in myself and I imagine many preachers do Um, This this thought that when you're preaching, it's not going to strike everybody. But there's somebody in the congregation today who needed to hear this from the Spirit. Not from me, but whatever the Spirit has helped me put together for Sunday. And I will say sometimes the Spirit's a little slow on that. (laughs) But whatever it is that's coming out is what's supposed to be said that day and there's somebody who needed it today and i don't know who that is and, and i don't need to know and i trust that when i get up to preach
1: i know the feeling there have been yeah. inevitably sometimes when a sermon hasn't hit me mm-hmm. i've appreciated it certainly but it hasn't not hit. mine though right No names mentioned. Okay. (laughs) But there have been other times uh, when a message delivered by somebody in this conversation has just rung a bell in my head that stayed rung for a while. Mm -hmm.
0: Right, and that's my experience as a person in the congregation and listening to other preachers too. Sometimes, right, it just goes straight into your heart like an arrow. Yeah. And then you're that person.
1: Yeah. Yeah. How did being canon for cathedral relations come about, and what does cathedral relations mean? Right.
0: Well, in general, the the four of us who are priests here are are generalists. That's how Steve described it to me, Steve the Dean here, Mm -hmm. um, when I was coming on. And that means that we all do all of the priestly things. So we all do pastoral care and we all do preaching and we all do liturgical planning and teaching and working in our ministries and working with outside organizations and the community because that's what a priest does. Mm-hmm. And Steve is interested in being a priest in all those ways and recognizes that we are too. So we are, we are priests who do the various priest things. Um, but in terms of keeping a cathedral running and and doing the things you do um, you know certain areas will have someone be the point person so before we had these titles uh, you know we still certain ones of us would be the point person for different activities and ministries and things going on and um, I think it became clearer this year that um, people wanted to know but who do I go to for this kind of thing um, Reasonably and made, you know, yeah. and, and that makes sense, and it also made it easier to just figure out um, who will be the starter, you know, who will be the the one to, to check in with, and the one to be overlooking certain things, hmm. and uh, that's why our various titles have come about. Um, so mine being uh, canon for cathedral relations, Steve talked about it to me about it being, you know, a lot of the external interface that we have. Um, so communications and community organizations and the ministries here that have a lot of external interface and, you know, what we're trying to do in the world. So when we're trying to figure out what the name of it should be, you know, uh, he said it could be this, it could be that, and I said, well, I think that a good name would be the canon for world peace. Um, And he laughed and he said, sure, but are you going to put a timeline on achieving it? (laughs) (laughs) Or something to that effect? Mm
1: First thing tomorrow. Um, oh my is.
0: goodness! Yes, um, but that being said, um, kind of external, right. but also relations internal. How we communicate, how we communicate and hear what our justice ministries are up to, um, that kind of thing. Also noting, though, that I'm not the only one of the priests who's point person for a justice ministry, nor am I the only one who is the liaison with an outside organization, Mm -hmm. but I'm the overall point person in those areas and for our communications endeavors. And it made sense for me to be canon for cathedral relations because my first career for 25 years was as communications director for nonprofit organizations so my undergraduate work is in journalism and mass communications and um, I did you know public relations and all of that kind of stuff for a number of organizations over the years. So So, you're bringing a
1: lot to this table. So
0: I have some background in it Um, it's not where I want to have my uh, my eye you know all the time and I don't need to because we have a wonderful communications director but I understand what's going on in that area. Yeah. To my
1: knowledge, one of, the, one of the key outreaches that we do, among all the key outreaches that we do, and something, a program that you have championed so well has been the sanctuary ministry here at St. Mark's. How did that come about, and what do you do with the sanctuary ministry?
0: So sanctuary at St. Mark's is a big ministry because there are so many people who are passionate about it and are part of this ministry and want to be active in the movement toward immigration reform and the rights and dignity of every human being which is part of our baptismal covenant and is written into the statement that we have on the doors of the cathedral about what we stand for. So when we put those statements on the door back in 2016 we had to actualize them somehow. It's fine to say we stand for this and we stand for that but What are you gonna do about it? So the Dean brought on the Reverend Pete Strymer to help us get started with a sanctuary ministry here and to figure out what that would look like. So for a year, Pete worked with us on bringing together all of the people who were interested and putting us into different task groups and figuring out what can we do? How shall we do it? How do we be effective here? Because what needs to happen isn't happening inside St. Mark's doors. It's happening out in the world. How do we best support that and go out and be part of it? So one of the key things that uh, Pete set up for us is an arrangement, well not an arrangement, a partnership, really a family relationship with the Church Council of Greater Seattle. We were already part of and working with the Church Council for years and years, but in terms of this immigration work, um, The church council put us in relationship with Casa Latina, which is the big day worker center workers' rights and education and family get-together place of the Latino community here in Seattle. And St. Mark's is not that. And so for us to be in relationship with Casa Latina and open our doors to them as a safe space, if they would need somewhere to be, if they were going to be under duress from ICE at their own location on any given day. Um, That was an important part of what we initially got started with and it has led to a great relationship with Casa Latina uh, where we participate in activities there. They have participated in things here and come and speak to us on what they do, uh, their very powerful uh, domestic workers rights all the different things. So that was how we got started in sanctuary. And that's where we get a lot of our, what I would call our marching orders. Uh, they don't tell us what to do, but they say, this is going on. Can your people participate? And I will send out the word and anyone who can, you know, will will come and participate in all kinds of immigration rights demonstrations. We've been, we've been down at ICE and Homeland. People have gone down to the detention center when we first were hearing the horrors of children uh, being in cages at the border, which is a real thing, yeah. you know, in front of um, ICE headquarters, lining shoes up and down the streets and speaking, St. Mark's participates in that as part of the church council, as an ally and partner of Casa Latina. That's important work for us. Um, we're engaged in uh, whatever is happening in this community. We're trying to get the word out to our community to be part of it. Um, And so that's a big part of it. And we also are a sanctuary church because all churches are sensitive locations. And the policy of ICE uh, and of the administration in directing ICE how to act has been not to violate sensitive locations. Churches, hospitals, schools. Now that is not... Unfortunately, inviolate, because some of that has happened, Um, but in general, and of course there are thousands of years of history of churches being sanctuary, Mm -hmm. so uh, we are a sensitive location, and so St. Mark's is to be a safe space. It is not against the law for ICE to come here, but they have respected the sanctity of a sensitive location and the sanctity of a religious space. So our entire campus is a sensitive location. And we do have um, Jaime who is here in Sanctuary with us, and we stand with him as he works to find legal channels to stay here and not be separated from his family. And our community is heartfelt and powerfully committed to standing with Jaime and for all the people that Jaime stands for because he is one man and you know if he can prevail that's a wonderful thing and our hearts will swell with joy but it's about the further the further notion of that that there are so many people in his position who are working so hard to work the system legally and properly to have a way to not be separated from their families in inhumane ways and in ways that do not respect the dignity of every human person, in ways that are racist and xenophobic, um, in ways that are small-minded, and in ways that are absolutely not Christianity. And so we stand with Jesus, and Jesus stands with the oppressed. Jesus welcomes the stranger. That's what we do in our sensitive location.
1: It's how we experience Jesus. Yeah. I, I love that phrase you and that's why I just keep going back to it that this experience of Jesus is not, a, is not a one-time thing that we just do on a Sunday morning, but it is advocating as powerfully as we can for those who are the victims of injustice. In whatever form that injustice takes, our role as Christians, as people who have taken this baptismal covenant seriously, is to bring that experience to far and wide as much as we can. And that means work. Absolutely. It's a lot of work, right?
0: And, I mean, it's been the work of the world for 2,000 years and before that. We still have far to go. But it is our work. And we are maybe not to be the generation that sees it all come to fruition. (laughs) You know, would that that would be so. But it's our work to be part of the progress toward the realization of the kingdom. That is already and not yet.
1: I remember you quoting a Jewish phrase in one of your sermons that said, we're not obligated to finish the work, but it is, and I'm paraphrasing here, neither are we obligated to turn a blind eye or to stop it and say, well, that's somebody else's problem. Right. We have to continue that.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, a quote from the Talmud telling us, it's not all on you, but that doesn't give you permission to not work at it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's hugely compelling. Yeah. That we can come here on a Sunday morning and enjoy this beautiful liturgy. Not enjoy might not be the right word, but to engage with this beautiful liturgy. Yeah. And to enjoy company and fellowship. Absolutely. And then to remind ourselves this means something. This has to mean something. Not for us, but for the people who feel like the world has left them behind. Or worse, that the world is targeting them. Yeah. And then how do we go out there and how do we support them? What work can we take from these Sunday mornings and say, let's make this last for a week, for a month, for a year? Yeah. Even if it feels like the progress is slow, to still go out there and do it. Yeah. And in a way, that's cathedral relations with the world out there.
0: Yeah, it absolutely is. You know, I I, I sometimes have that, that hymn, old hymn in my head. You know, uh, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Well, were you there when they put the kids in cages? Were you there when they ripped families apart? Were you there when they were pulling over African-American citizens and not white citizens? Were you there and what did you do?
1: That's a question we all should ask. Yeah. And hopefully the answer is in what we do.
0: Right, that I did something. Yeah. I didn't fix it, although, you know, if I could fix it, I would. But uh, I did something.
1: In the name of Jesus. Uh, this has been, I think, one of the, maybe the only interview I've conducted where I've, where I've laughed as hard as I have <laughs> in what we've talked about, but to to finish on such a powerful note that this is what we're all called to do. We're all called to be in cathedral relations, to take our word and our work out there. Absolutely. To the places and the people who need it the most. That's our work as Christians.
0: And that's one of the reasons it's so great being here at St. Mark's, because this is a very engaged community. And I am so glad to be part of it.
1: Um, I can... I will speak for myself and I will speak for literally hundreds of others of people who say, We are so glad that you are here <laughs> to do the to to do the work that you do in your office, to lead us in worship, to to guide us in this incredibly important work that we're called to do. Not just on Sundays, not just not just when something speaks to us, but as living out our baptismal covenant. You know, we just had all Saints Day and when we were sprinkled and called to remember our baptism it means to remember what we signed up for yeah uh, and signing up for this experience means to do the work here and Nancy thank you so much for leading us in that and being a part of that mm. with and being a part of that work with us we are as a community so lucky to have you as one of us and as one of our leaders
0: thank you it is just an incredible blessing to be here We're all in it together. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Our music was performed by Michael Kleinschmidt on the Flintrop organ at St. Mark's. Michael Pereira and Andrew Himes produced the podcast, and we hope you'll visit stmarks.org. So long.